So that's <laughs> that's the sign. That's the sign. The notes are thrust out <laughs> on the table. The notes are shut. That's the sign to begin. If 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 on any previous occasion where we've recorded a podcast, we've somehow come across as people who think they know what they're talking about or are in a position to at least pretend that they know what they're talking about. This week is not one of those weeks. <laughs> this um, week, full we... disclosure from the outset. Yeah, um, I was planning on making a very similar uh, uh, statement disclaimer <laughs> at the beginning, which is, yeah, not entirely certain. I really understand what's going on here. Mm-hmm. I know you don't really get that a lot when people are like putting themselves out there publicly to discuss something <laughs> on a public forum. However, I'm not entirely certain. I really know what's going on. So, dear listener, if you want to know what's going on. Do the reading yourself <laughs> and then tell us because, you know, uh, a little confused over here. What are you going to do? Regardless, Welcome. is it summer, Dan? I suppose it is, yeah. We did it. You made it to summer. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> we'll see. Today was definitely like the first like weird hot and then pouring with hot rain. Hot and then rain and, and hot then and then rain. I yeah. mean, we've not had any rain in such a long time. Yeah. Any amount is, I don't know, yeah. uncommon, but also very melancholy. a relief. Felt very melancholy looking at the rain for some reason. I was just like, ah. Oh, you mean you felt melancholy, or it yeah. felt like a melancholy day? You felt melancholy. A bit of both. I uh-huh. felt melancholy. I was yeah. just like, look at that, and I'm stuck in here. And because all because like where I work, I can kind of like see some trees, like a little bit of forest. And I was like, ah, went for a walk in my lunchtime, and I was like, you know, like it's weird during summer. Like not a lot of light actually comes through down to like the forest floor so you got this kind of weird like oh it's actually kind of darker in here right now yeah yeah, yeah. But it's nice all the leaves are on the trees it's very nice yeah the best time of year in the woods is when before all the leaves mm. come into leaf and so all of the the wildflowers come out in early spring and so yeah. you've got this sort of woodland floor covering wildflowers <laughs> yeah and there's still these sort of like shafts of bright light coming through the trees that the canopy's not fully yeah. opened yet but Apparently, I've missed that part of the missed, year. I've yeah, missed well, it. now it's all the bluebells are just pissed off because they're like, I guess we'll just die now. Yeah, We're just not right. getting some. <laughs> um, all right. Well, I'm feeling... <sighs> it's not the cops, everybody. It's not the cops um, at this time. There was, there was a roundabout outside where we record. Mm. And um, obviously, <laughs> often, uh, noise yeah. uh, comes onto the recording. Usually, irate drivers being irate <laughs> at one another from... Presumably, incredibly legitimate reasons, and not just <laughs> oh sure utilizing the horns on their cars yeah, uh, willy nilly. Yeah, no, it's great. Um, but there's a portion of the road which is closed off today, so yeah. they'll either be lighter and quieter um, roundabout noise, or more and more people like getting pissed off that part of the roundabout <laughs> is closed and yeah. getting more angry. Yeah, true. Or what happened uh, when we talked to June, which was jackhammers, people getting angry, church bells, everything going off. So yeah. hopefully that won't happen. <laughs> There's been yeah. a, like a burst water main outside of here for like yeah. three weeks. Yeah, and so many times time. I've seen like construction workers come and look at it and they're there sort of scratching their heads. <laughs> Have a and point. then I'm like, oh God, they've come to fix it. And then I see the next day and there's still water <laughs> pouring down the street. So yeah. now they've decided they do just need to take the entire road up to try and fix it. Yeah. I, uh, it's very weird coming from a place that's been in a perpetual drought for like, I don't know, decades now. Like, it's very weird just seeing people be like, that's ah, just, you just know, several thousand gallons of water being wasted. <laughs> so what? It away down the, street. Yeah. Yeah, all right. uh, the English and all of their water. Uh, look uh-huh. at that. Oh, wow. Anyway, there's an insight into British infrastructure, <laughs> particularly infrastructure work so we can see out of our window. Yeah, exactly. Thanks a lot. Boris Johnson. Um, you know who'd fix this is the Lib Dems. I was <laughs> I was house sitting for someone in uh, 
recently in a uh, pamphlet got pushed through for the Lib Dems, and it was so funny. It was just like, here's what we promised to do. And it was like, make the bins look nicer. Like, get rid of the graffiti. Look at what we would do. And it's just like, oh, my God, you sickos. I, I don't know what it's, what like local politics is like in America. I suppose there's different <laughs> tiers of local politics, yeah. right? But here, there's like the central government that has all the power and sets all the budgets and can do anything, anything that actually is of importance. Yeah. And then there's like local government, which has no budgets, has no power, and um, has purview over the most important thing yeah. in everybody's lives, exactly. which is when the bins are collected. <laughs> exactly. so, like, which you know di- what the disparance, the disparate power <laughs> yes. relationship between actually holding power and then people thinking. <laughs> They hold significant power because of yeah. the one menial, insignificant task they have responsible yeah. for and continually fuck up. Exactly. What are you going to do? As you once said, petty fascism, it's all around us. So, <laughs> you know, what are you going to do? Um, speaking of fascists, Dan, <laughs> no, not speaking of fascists, um, we finally did it. And we finished Endnotes 1 after last episode, starting with the first essay in the intro. We finally finished the whole dang thing. Uh, and I guess we're here to talk about it. <laughs> we're here to talk about it. It was, so we read Normative History, Human All Too Human, Love of Labor, Love of Labor Lost, Much Do About Nothing in the Afterword. Basically, that is all to say, the debate between more or less Gilles DeVay and a couple of his cronies and Theory Communist. Um, ultra left versus ultra left. We're going to tell <laughs> you who won. <laughs> The, the, Dan and I are known for our love of debate culture, and um, <laughs> we're going to tell you once and for all who won this at the end of the episode. So stick around, everybody. It'll be worth it. I don't know. <laughs> but first to do that, we have to try and understand it, and I'm not sure that I do. So, you know, uh-huh. what do you think? Uh, yeah, yeah. I, I do think that maybe I um, was able to extract something from it. There are some quite fundamental uh, differences between these two writers or these two groups of writers. Mm. Obviously, they, as we covered last week, they both fall under the broad umbrella, uh, umbrella that I now understand to be quite diffuse <laughs> yeah, in no its kidding. general meaning. They both fall under the broad umbrella of communization. Um, I think Jack and I are probably in the same position we left off last week's episode in that we don't, not really sure that we understand <laughs> what communization is quite yet. Um but there is quite a fundamental uh, mm. distinction between the two of them, mostly pertaining to uh, a broad view of history mm. and the history and development of class struggle and um, the function of class struggle and the role of the proletariat in the process of the overcoming of capitalism. Mm. Um, we left off last week having read the first essay by Gilles Devey, where he basically presents this history of the defeat of the workers' movement in the first half of the 20th century, really. Mm. Um, and it's mostly just this long uh, series of defeats by of the workers' movement by fascism, which largely just stands in for the capitalist system and the capitalist state mm. uh, defeating these workers' movements. Um and his general diagnosis was that um, the workers moved well. The 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 proletariat never went far enough. Mm. They quite often acquiesced or fell in behind their official 
representatives, the trade unions, the parties who in the end, in the end always ended up being um, sort of reformist rather than revolutionary in that sort of broad schema um, and falling into the general um, falling into a politics of anti-fascism which yeah. usually necessitated some kind of alliance with the state, with liberals, with um, whomever else which ultimately ended up in defeat. Yeah, and fascism, weird. And in fascism, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Why is it that anti-fascism always leads to fascism? Yeah, exactly. Um, well, yeah, just to, to jump in real quick too, that's a really, I think, key distinction that we need to emphasize. This is like the crux of this whole debate, right, is that Gilles de Vey is basically saying the workers, they they could have done it, they could have done they could have done communism, but they just didn't. And here's X, Y, and Z why. And in this situation, here's why they didn't do it. And in Spain, they didn't do this. And it basically kind of comes down to uh, the end of like that idea, which is actually like him and theory companies wouldn't agree on what I just said, but they would agree on this last bit, which is basically like the communization bit. Gilles de Bay is basically like you know, all of these intermediary institutions, whether that's the dictatorship of the proletariat or the unions or whatever, basically lead to uh, not doing communism immediately. And if they want to do communism, they have to do it immediately. And that's basically what communization is, right? It's that this revolution needs to have communism in it. And if it doesn't, then they're going to fail. So yeah, I think it's important to say that like that is Dove's main point, And that's what sets off this debate is that they kind of could have done it. At these different points of like, uh, you know, uh, ups and downs in the labor movement and ups and downs in like capitalist business cycles, there are points where communism could have happened, but they just didn't um, because the people made the wrong choices. Um, yeah. And I think that's a much more comforting idea than what theory companies winds up saying. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess we're not probably not going to be able to follow through with this text chronologically. Mm, yeah. uh, so we're probably just going to jump around quite a lot. Um, so, yeah, there is sort of one contradiction which kind of stems from... Well, I, I, it's broadly broke down. Their two theories are... Theory communist critique or uh, describe Gilles Dove's view of history as being normative. Mm. Um, and on the flip side theory communist maybe can be broadly described as having a structuralist view of history. Yeah, very determined. Determined yeah, by things. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but yeah, the, theory communist sort of critiqued Dove and his view of the failings of the 20th century workers' movement by saying that basically Dove is uh, saying, has a basically a tautological argument, right? Mm -hmm. Like the... The revolution failed because the revolution failed. Mm. Why did the proletariat not successfully usher in communism? Because they didn't do it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and theory communists say, well, Dove never gets to the point of saying, well, why did it fail? Mm. Um, and they sort of step in with this argument as to mm. uh, why it failed. Yeah, which I think I, I'm just going to jump in because I feel like I was on board with... The I'm just going to, right off the bat, I feel like I should say I don't know necessarily if I agree with one of them 100% and the other one like 0%. I think we both fell into the trap of we read one of them, we agree with yeah, exactly. it, we read the other Who one. Who was the, like, oh, <laughs> the last say? Um, but I mean, I feel like, and I'm interested to know what you think on this. 
I was definitely on board when I first read them be like, Gilles de Vey, you're making a logical inconsistency. You're being tautological. <laughs> they didn't do the revolution because they didn't That's do the, the revolution. The debate broke. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you fool. You dullard. Yeah, but if there like, is a like, deb debate bro, debate me bro <laughs> strand of this. You're it, telling me there's <laughs> French debate bro culture? Oh, my God. Um, it's definitely represented by theory communists in this exactly. text. <laughs> yeah, literally like line by line at certain points. It's like, all right, all right. Mm -hmm. But anyway, like I feel like that's unfair to Gilles de Bay, if I'm being honest. And I think like maybe it's just because I don't want to be as fatalist as theory communist is and as like, well, you know, bro, it's just never going to happen until right now. Now's the time it can happen. Like I feel like to bring his history and his understanding of the class struggle down to that tautology of the working class didn't do the revolution because they didn't do the revolution is unfair and i feel like it's just like a question of language and like syntax and not necessarily like addressing his argument necessarily because i suppose he's saying they didn't do the revolution because they didn't do communism but he's also saying like they didn't do the revolution because they didn't take the necessary steps. And one thing I really appreciate about both of these people, especially Dovey, is that they put, like, getting rid of value and value abolishment, like, front and center. Like, they completely reframe that to the extent that they're, like, really idealist and being, like, if you don't do it on day one, it's never going to happen. Yeah. It's like, yeah okay, I mean, guys. last week we were a bit perplexed by why both of them would, particularly Dovey from last week's reading, why... Reading between the lines, you can see this critique of the council communists and the fundamental principles yeah. sort of outline of what a transition to communism might look like. Um, and for both of them, and for Dovey explicitly, I suppose, um, there is this argument that all of that is... Well, if, if communization is the immediate institution of communist social relations... Globally. From the revolution onwards kind of thing. <laughs> and anything mediating that process, anything transitional, mm. any structure or schema that sort of like allows for the continued existence of some cap capitalist elements whilst building the what would be the both common, both workers' power, I suppose, um, but also the... And like a withering away of the state. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're both even opposed to like concepts of like the dictatorship of the proletariat as being a transitionary or mediating part mm. of this process kind of thing. Um, so in that way, yes, they, they are both very much in sort of like, mm. yeah, as you say, to taking it to the nth degree of being yeah. like abolish value immediately kind of thing. It feels, it feels, maybe I'm just saying this because they're French, but it feels almost postmodern in its like, well, I don't know, dude, like these big theories, of, like obviously they have big theories of history, so it's not quite postmodern or anything. They have these narratives, but also they just wind up being like, well, if you don't do it immediately, then it's not going to happen. And it's like, okay, great. Thanks. Like, okay. Last, last episode, I was like fully on board with like the ultra left left com stuff as I tend to be when I'm reading left com stuff. But then I just finish it and I wind up getting like pissed off because it's like, okay, here's this awesome analysis of like, you know, being really critical of bureaucracies that form around workers' parties and unions that I find really, like, compelling and really, really awesome and that puts it, like, recenters power back in working-class people's hands. But then you get to the end and it's just like, well, now what? And it's like, this is, like, beyond spontaneity. This is just, like, it's going to happen. <laughs> like, like, I don't know. It's, like, a step beyond spontaneity. And it leaves no room for, like, putting in the work. I don't know. It just, both of these feel a little like 
obviously they're ultra leftists. So like, yeah, but it feels like, well, then what, what are we doing? What can we do? If we can't do anything, then yeah, what are you going to do anyway? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Goddamn lefties. Um, but yeah, so I guess maybe we, we're teasing kind of what theory communists say, and we'll go back and forth between talking about both of them. But then theory communist, as you were saying, yeah, it's definitely much more structurally determined, much more uh, depressing. <laughs> um, they're much more fatalist. They're basically saying that I suppose is it fair to say that the working class could not have done uh, communism. They were doing progr programmatism. I've been trying to figure out how I was going to pronounce that for the last week. Um, and they're basically saying that, like, that old workers' movement, it was never going to go anywhere. It was never going to do anything. Gilles Devey, you're such a fool for thinking that these up and downs of the class struggle did anything but reaffirm the proletariat as the proletariat. And it's very, like, it goes beyond even, like, the ultra-left of Gilles Devey because it basically just says, forget entirely. Don't just forget about the old workers' movements, meaning, like, you know, the post-World War One, like, you know, whether they be Soviets or councils or, like, the SPD or anything like that. Don't even don't even think about them because that was never going to happen. Like if you try and do communism like that, it's never going to work. And it's like again, it just leaves this like I don't know. I'm all for like moving on from history and looking to the future instead of the past and stopping like idolizing like you know I don't know you know, people who have pictures of Karl Marx on their wall. It's like all right, what's going on there? But like I don't know. It's a bit much. It's a bit much to, I think, just make the statement that this stuff could have never happened. Communism could have never happened, you fool, because I understand Marx and the cycles, you, the cycles, subsumption. Like, I don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. I'm really torn between these two theories of history. Mm. And I think it's because there is a, whenever we look at history, um, whenever we read uh, a, a text, a historiographic text, whenever we read Samella Mixon's Wood or mm. we read Perry Anderson or some other person that's talking about historical materialism and the, the transition between modes of production and what have you. Um, I always fall back on this idea of thinking about like continuity and change, right? Yeah. Where does the continuity exist? Where does the change exist? Is the change between the modes of production or is there change that's happening internal to the modes of production? Is there continuity to between the two modes of production? Are there or is even the modes of production? Are there even modes of production? <laughs> exactly, yeah. <laughs> is it just some kind of like big Marxist theoretical <laughs> mindset that we've all talked ourselves into and then just sort of like you t tilt your head slightly askew and it all disappears because it's just some sort of edifice that... Um, anyway, <laughs> anyway, um, but the, if there is a, f a fundamental aspect to the the debate that they're having, it's this one, which is that like Gilles Dove is all about invariance, right? Mm. There are things, there are characteristics of capitalism, and therefore the social relations that capitalism creates, particularly the social relations between capitalist and proletarian. And the sort of economic, the nature of the economic position that the proletariat is in, that are invariant throughout capitalism, mm. from the very point of capitalism's inception all the way to its end, all the same rules basically apply. Mm. And so it's from this point that he ends up with this argument that both at any stage in history, in any stage in the history of the class struggle, the proletariat could have taken those decisive steps. They could have been revolutionary when they weren't. And that's why he always puts it down to their failing almost. And it's what it was it's you're right to say before that like there is something quite reassuring about that, right? Mm. Like the proletariat has this capacity. Um and it's it's quite a Marxist one in the sense that it puts the agency in the in the place of the proletariat, I guess. Um 
And I've always found that quite compelling. And I've always like felt uncomfortable with arguments that say, at a certain point in history, communism wasn't possible. Yeah. And they usually come from technological determinists. And these, these, I don't think either of these people, these, well, theory communists are definitely not technological determinists. But there's a version of that argument that they're making, which is um, communism was impossible up to a certain point. There has to be a certain degree of development in capitalism before you can make that step. And so theory communists are coming from the other end of the spectrum of like, if it's not that there's invariant characteristics of capitalism that never change but maybe they would both say that there are, there is development in the history internal to capitalism and there is invariance internal to capitalism and they both just put their focus onto different things yeah. theory communists very much focus on the development of capitalist relations whereas um they're very much focuses on the uh, invariance there's a little bit in one of these essays where i think it's in the in the the first theory communist essay that's criticizing Dovey where they sort of like um, diagnosed Dovey's mistake in 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 a way which was which was quite clarifying for me. They say that Dovey is mistaking. They sort of turn the contradiction of capitalism. Dovey is mistaking the contradiction of capitalism as being one that's between communism and capitalism. Like yeah. there is this thing communism out there, mm. and it's just waiting in the wings to sweep capitalism away. Whereas theory communists are much more focused on a contradiction between the proletariat and capital, mm. which is a sort of much more fluid and ongoing uh, contradiction, yeah. which one which is unfolding kind of thing. Yeah, it's all very interesting. In theory communist, I think that they do a better job of like doing history, if that makes sense. I do think that they have like a much more well thought out, even if I think maybe I kind of wind up more like a little bit of just like, <laughs> for no other reason than just wanting to agree with Gilles Duvet, maybe slightly siding towards what he's saying a bit more. But, like, they have this very interesting argument, which is, like, what they call pro programatism. Programatism. Program program programatism. 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 <laughs> Pro programmed things. Yeah. It's basically, like, the idea of the old workers' movements as having, like, a program. So they have their program that they want to implement. They'll organize their way either politically or economically through unions or parties or whatever. And they'll basically get to the point where they can take power and do all of the demands that they want. Theory Communist basically says that all that wound up doing was not reifying, but like turning the, allowing the proletariat to see itself as a class and indeed like formalizing its place in capitalism as the working class. And so that's their argument for like why they could have never done it, dude, is because that's like the end goal. And they say that like after all those workers' movements got crushed and everything by the end of World War II, um, that like, yeah, that it, the proletariat was then fully, it took its place in capitalism as the working class. And so this like falls very nicely, a little too nicely into their theory that, hey, now that we see people not wanting to work, man, that's them self-negating. And the only way this, yeah, I don't know, this feels very idealist to me because they're basically saying like the only way that the proletariat can ever finally do communism is by self-negating, man, and by not reifying itself, I'm probably using reifying incorrectly, but by not, like, seeing itself as the working class, but by seeing itself as the harbingers of a classless society. You know, you like, they both would say that you can't just see communism as 
changing managers, right? Communism or socialism is not simply just the working class managing things, right? It needs to be a bigger change. So that's what they're saying about this whole self-negation thing. And it's funny because, like, I definitely agree with theory communist up until maybe that point. Like, I definitely don't agree with them about all the stuff about, like, they could have never done socialism ever until they could self-negate. But that just feels like an argument that's very... Like what you said last time about like them seeing what's in front of them and going, oh yeah, this. Because it's very convenient for them to be like, socialism could never happen until right now. Yeah. It's like, oh, what, in 1970 in France? Cool, okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's one that seems to be one of Devay's critiques of mm. TC is basically like, TC see failure and are like, this is the conditions for success, you know? <laughs> and it's like... <laughs> um, yeah, I guess it's worth saying that like, in a lot of ways, you could hear the word like programmatism and be, and think like, okay, it's the communist parties and the trade unions who are imposing a program on the sort of free thinking proletariat. But I think their their description of it goes a lot more deep, a lot deeper than that. And they say that like, it's anything whereby the sort of active agency of the proletariat in its fighting of the class struggle, anything that emerges from that, um, a sort of a tactical effort to overcome capitalism become sort of like reified or turned into a program it's kind of like the conditions of the struggle somehow become the conditions of communism and therefore they're sort of like building upon the class struggle which is inevitably predicated on capitalist social relations and don't step outside of it and then take that and say okay these will be the conditions for the overcoming of capitalism kind mm. of thing um they do use a quote from Marx, which I found quite compelling. Um, it's around a discussion about Marx's commentary on the uh, Paris Commune, and they go through the history of the Paris Commune a bit, but yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, um, and they talk about this characteristic. You sort of touched on it then. They talk about this characteristic of the proletariat as being not affirming the proletariat as a class in its conflict with the bourgeoisie, mm. but rather the proletariat representing the possibility of a classless society itself kind of thing. They sort of self-negate, but they negate the distinction between proletarian class and capitalist class. So they're almost saying anything which is... Um, any politics which is around fighting the class struggle as the class mm. is programmatism and negative and you sort of have to get past this as you were saying sort of make this step toward uh self-negation which sounds kind of wishy-washy but um there does seem to be something in the argument which i find quite, quite compelling i suppose or uh coming back to like what is the role of the proletariat um it's an interesting conceptualization of the role of the proletariat as being that force which is able to overcome class and therefore sort of institute the mm. human society that we sort of would hope communism or socialism would be brought about by the negation of the existence of class. I yeah. suppose, does that make sense? No, that's very, um, that, there's a lot of truth in that. And yeah, there's a lot of truth in that. And I mean, like, I think where they just go wrong is... I don't know. It's it's the question of, like, where is the negation of class going to come from? Is it going to come from this class struggle where you are 
fighting as a class where you recognize yourself as a class and then you're like, oh, but hey, we are this class that can do the no class thing. Or is it just through this spontaneous self-negation, everybody may be getting fed up slash maybe there's just a big crisis. Like, I don't know. I don't exactly know. But like, yeah, I don't know. I feel like it's not lazy. Like if we put aside the fact that like all of the basic concrete good that these old worker struggles did for like working class people, which is nothing to sneeze at and indeed what we should all be trying to do in our lives every single day. But in that aside, like, I don't know. They're almost being a bit normative too, I guess. But like, I don't know. It's like, how are we ever going to make any kind of global change happen? Capitalism is this global system. How are we ever going to make this global change happen like spontaneously? It doesn't seem like it makes sense. And I feel like there may be just throwing all forms of working class organization under the same umbrella when perhaps, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but perhaps we just haven't tried the correct form of organization. Because yeah, I would be tempted to obviously say that like those old school forms of organization led to like some sort of bureaucracies forming that were just interested in perpetuating themselves and not the end goal of socialism. Um, but like, yeah, what if we have the good organization? They'd be like, goddamn form. That's all form, no content. But like, I don't know. We've come across different forms of organization before in doing reading for this show and ones that are much more promising than just like, you know, your union or whatever. So, yeah. There's another element to um, Delvey's conceptualizing as history or focusing on the invariant elements in history, which takes an interesting turn, which I hadn't been expecting, which is he basically makes the argument that programmatism as the... The, as TC would describe it, never actually existed. Mm. Um, he, which I found quite compelling when I was reading through, actually. It's stuck in this kind of like anti-work mode. <laughs> like um, he's basically, he present in one of his essays, he prevents this, presents this reading of history, which says, in actual fact, the most important element in all like working class resistance to capitalism the important aspect of all of the major revolutionary events of the 19th and early 20th century, the really invariant element in all of this was actually the resistance to work. Mm. Um, he makes he's try, he tries to construct an argument that says the workers' movement's first instinct is always to negate work. It's always to lessen the amount of hours they have to do. It's always to get a shorter working week, get more time away. Whenever there's a revolutionary moment, it's not a matter of, okay, let's seize the factories and continue to work <laughs> because we love work so much and we affirm ourselves through work. Mm. Um, it's, all, it's actually, okay, no, let's let's slack off. Let's mm. get out of here. Like let's do something else. Let's, yeah, let's have a party or whatever yeah. kind of thing. Um, how true that argument is, how true that reading of history is, I don't know, but um, I guess it's all, it's, it was both exciting and compelling to me because obviously you, you, we're both like into a broad critique of work, whether we <laughs> sort of align ourselves with anti-work politics in general. Or like, just don't like work. We do dislike work. <laughs> it does indeed suck. Um, so to at least recognize that element in all of uh, working class resistance to capitalism is important, I think. Oh, yeah. That instinct to negate the proletarian condition mm. um, is compelling. Now, TC retort and say, well, actually, no, Dover, your reading <laughs> history is wrong here. Look at these instances. There are these things that happen. You've skipped over these other things kind of thing. Mm. Um, but it was funny that he's willing to take the invariant so far that he sort of almost denies the core elements of what we think of as being the workers' movement, which is 
building a working class movement which aspires to take over the means of production and control and run the productive apparatus of society mm. kind of thing. Yeah. This question of the essence of the proletariat yeah. I think is really, really, really interesting because it's like, it, honestly, I think it's probably more of an anthropological question than anything. And it's more so just like, what it, what is it that we actually want as humans, not even just proletariats? Because it's like, I don't think we have on the historical record any enough information to know like, if there was ever a peasant commune during feudal times in Western Europe that was somehow through hooker by crook freed from, you know, feudal obligations, what they wound up doing with most of their days. And I feel like maybe the only way that we could actually really study this of like, what is it that people actually want? So we can try and like attempt to engineer a society to maximize for that and not, you know, exchange value or whatever. Like we would have to see, I don't know, when we read the Marshall Solids, we definitely saw that like people just like hanging out and like, Perhaps the primitive mode is the only mode that we can look to, to be like hunter-gatherers and stuff, to be like, here is like a really interesting confluence of work and just chilling out and just living your life, man. Because one thing that has always stuck with me for some reason is that when we were reading that, how um, how hunter-gatherer people treated their tools as just like, you know, this thing that they'd spend a really long time making, but then just like, well, yeah, let it rot or whatever, because it's just like, what I'll just make another one, whatever, who cares? I'm just gonna like hang out and dance or whatever. Um, so I don't know really where I'm going with this, other than like, theory communist critique is really interesting. That first essay that we get to of theirs, where they're basically critiquing Gilles de Bay for being normative and for being like, you are reading history almost in hindsight as being like, every proletariat at that point was struggling for communism and it's a communism I think it's not the communism of what everybody else thinks it's what I think it's no goddamn labor vouchers but it's value no value immediately and yeah I agree with theory communist and that you can't do that like workers were struggling for something I don't know necessarily if we can pinpoint what that thing is but maybe if there is some sort of like anthropological like work out there we can kind of see what it is that humans strive for because like yeah, I think that the anti-work element is something that is, like, very important in the essence of, like, humans. Because it's, like, it's been a very long time since we've been able to live our lives how we wanted to without some sort of obligation towards doing things we don't. Like, obviously, like, I know that that's, like, very silly to say. But, like, feudalism, capitalism, ancient mode, obviously. But, like... Yeah, what is it that we're really all after? And I do think that you generally see some sort of essence of humanity in the, like, go on strike, shut down the factory, open the factory up, invite your whole family, everybody, we just have a big block party. Like, I th like there's something there that isn't just, like, workers struggling for managing things in the place of the bourgeoisie, you know, so, yeah. It's, it definitely seems to be the case that in this argument, Dove is the humanist. Mm. Like, Dove is the one that believes in freedom and the will of human beings and almost something that stands outside of capitalism right there is a human society to be created which maybe existed in the past or some elements of which have existed in the past there almost is some kind of human essence to be affirmed and it's kind of the role of the proletariat to affirm that essence um and that's sort of the crux of like his critique of theory communist as being determinist mm. or i suppose it's the it's the element in the argument that would make theory communist potentially structuralist i suppose in the sense that their focus is all on the structure of uh capitalism and the capitalist social relations and they really critique 
Dove for believing there is some kind of outside of this contradiction, you know, um, whereas Dove sort of definitely gives to the proletariat some kind of um, aspiration, some kind of like, I don't know. Mm. freedom loving element i suppose yeah. i don't know <laughs> yeah something uh, in, the, in the first essay they just constantly critique dove for talking about like proletarian like essence or power or like i don't know some will to power or something mm. um yeah i found that bit very compelling when theory communist was like you okay but you are kind of normalizing history to what you want to read into it like as i think he was like a bit. He was kind of being like, well, this is what everybody wanted. What I want, this thing, communization, this is what everybody was trying to do, but they just didn't make the right decisions. Yeah. It's like as comforting as that is, like, yeah, I don't know if that's the best historiographic like approach. But, you know, because you can only study people like by what they did and not by what you want them to do, right? So I don't know. What are you going to do? Um, I will say, I think we're supposed to agree with Theory Communist at the end of this. Okay, just so okay, you know, okay. To get our card carrying cards. Ed wants us to <laughs> agree Jones with Theory does. Communist, do they? Ed Jones definitely does, and it was very depressing. <laughs> but you get to the end of it, and you're just like, wait a minute, I'm supposed to be agreeing with Theory Communist? Then, like, what is to say that we can't do communism now? Like, oh, God. <laughs> yeah. That's yeah, the... all of my aspiration and hope lies with Dove. And yeah. then I suppose all of my kind of, like, uh, desire to win the debate yeah. <laughs> maybe lies with the theory communist yeah. i don't know who can have the most complicated argument i will say like dove is generally quite a delight to read or at least reads very well and very easily theory communist <laughs> writes yeah. ridiculously long paragraphs <laughs> ridiculously long sentences there are sentences where each sentence has three or four like <laughs> sub clauses, and then yeah. each of those clauses has an element in parentheses. So you're just like just losing the plot trying to discern yeah. what it is that they're actually trying to say. And then you've got five or six paragraphs that sort of seem to say mostly the same thing. <laughs> the thing that pisses me off the most about this is that they will wind up agreeing with each other. Like they'll all wind up being communization guys and being like, well, yeah, they just got to do communism, man. It's like, oh my God, why did I read this? It's like, Jesus. <laughs> yeah what are you mm. gonna do um yeah i don't know it, it i i suppose maybe we should just get into critiques a little bit of communization in general like it seems like a very kind of uh to me at least like it's cool and it's exciting and it's like yeah it's the lazy thing to say like yeah just do communism man but it feels very much a like you know padded armchair kind of like uh well, the proletariat must simply just do this, smoking a pipe in front of a large fireplace with a large mantle or whatever. Like, it feels extremely idealistic, and it feels like... Well, yeah, it is just extremely idealistic. Like, it, it basically leaves no room for some kind of, like... Any, some, any kind of organized class struggle beyond, like, a very quick insurrection where everybody, you know, seven and a half billion people or whatever, do it all at the same time, and it just happens. And it feels very, like... Yeah, fatalist. Like, Theory Communist is definitely fatalist in their, like, approach to history. But I feel like Gilles Duvet as well, for, like, the same conclusion that they've all come to, is also very fatalist. Because it's like, I don't know, when are the correct conditions ever going to arise for this to all go perfectly well, you know? Like, I've always thought that that's kind of the thing that distinguishes communists from anarchists is, like, some sort of transition in the sense of, like, we're going to have to kind of figure things out. You know what I mean? We're going to have to set things up so that we don't just get stuck in like all of the failures that we have in the past, but like we got to do a little bit of organizing. So this just feels very much like a very idealist, like 
Marxists who don't kind of really want to call themselves anarchists, but are maybe just Kropotkin. Like, I don't know. It feels very, like, it's a bit much. It's a bit much. Yeah, they both definitely, it seems, give to the proletariat some kind of impulse to negate, you know? <laughs> so there's no, like... It's my favorite band. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> impulse to negate. Impulse to negate. <laughs> what do they do? Some kind of, like, tool-like progressive mentalism? Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> With, like, a guy cut in half, search, getting into the ether on their album cover or something. <laughs> yeah, Dovey's that very much, like... The working class just doesn't like being exploited, you know? Like... Mm. If only they would, um, I don't know, they sort of like, they, well, he says they sort of, which is quite an interesting point, actually, they kind of like bear the commodity which allow, which makes the creation of all other commodities possible, right? Mm. Like, by virtue of their being laborers, they sort of like fulfill this essential point, the part of the productive process. Uh, but he also makes this case that like, he tries to make the argument that like, the working class are exploited but they're not completely dominated by capital. They always like, there is always, there are always these two poles and the proletariat always manages to keep itself at least to some extent independent and removed kind of thing, which is true, right? There is no overcoming the contradiction between mm. social, between capital, between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, right? Mm. There is always this ongoing contradiction. Um, so for Devey, there's this, just this tendency, there's this, they don't like being exploited and so they will overcome it at some point kind mm -hmm. of thing. They will always like move toward revolutionary means and outcomes and that kind of thing. Um, and theory communists also have, in this sort of like, in a version which is like developmentalist, right? They're like, okay, something happened in the sort of 60s and 70s. The working class has overcome programmatism and now there's something about the conditions of exploitation there's something about the conditions of the relationship between the bourgeoisie and the proletariat which now puts the proletariat in this position where it is willing to negate its first imp or they sort of like draw this history of the last 30 years which is there is always this element to the class struggle whereby the proletariat is always willing or looking for ways to negate their position as mm. proletariat rather than affirm it um so they both obviously like fall into this uh, version of revolution, which is imminent, which isn't built toward, which isn't the development of building up class forces to make the transition possible because they both deny the necessity for having a transition at all. Mm. Um, I think it's an, it, is a, it is an interesting argument and it's a compelling one and it's one that we should always keep in mind, right? How much are the institutions that we would like to build to both represent the interests of the working class and be able to orchestrate the transition to socialism and then communism? How much is the fact that they come out of capitalism uh, how much does that curtail their ability to actually uh, fulfill this role of yeah, transitioning us? Yeah. And so it's something that's definitely worth keeping in mind as something that's quite compelling. But I don't think either of us are ready, ready to sort of like jump on the, mm. on, on the communization train. Yeah, well, it's interesting because it's like it, something... Well, yeah, I, I fully agree with that. I fully agree with the like... If it is a party just modeled along bourgeois party lines that calls itself like the Labour Party or something like that, or if it is just like a trade union, like 
you do have to consider the, you know, we talked about this before, the actual mission, well the, well, the distinction between the mission goals of these organizations and what they actually do. It's, you know, the system, function of a system is what it does. Like, a union, whether you like it or not, the union it obviously helps people out, it makes things better for people, it eases the troubles of the working classes. What a union does is just mediate between labor and capital. And so, like, if you're putting your hope in, you know, as uh, Gilles DeVay kind of angrily talks about the, like, Spanish anarchist unions, it's still a union, you know? And, like, you do definitely need to be wary of anything that smacks of, like, well, what is this organization actually doing? What is this party actually doing? Because the Labor Party just wants to be a parliamentary party, like, if we're being honest. You know, same with, obviously, with the Democrats. Um, and so I think maybe that's why I kind of, this is where I begin to disagree with them, though, because it's like, I just kind of take all of these as a question of organization and like there is there are ways to actually create functioning systems that have as their end goal I think socialism. They just don't necessarily look like what we've done in the past which you know whether or not that could have worked I think is perhaps a topic for another day like I'm tempted to say that like who's who's to say like I, I don't know maybe yeah maybe I don't think we have like well if we're going to have enough detail to know if like hey, maybe the SPD could have done it, you know what I mean? I don't know. But, like, yeah, I am tempted to say that, like, all of this anti-capitalist energy exists amongst the working classes, and it is just a matter of harnessing it for the proper end goal. Because, like, that's where I think Gilles Debay is right, is that, like, yes, this energy does exist, and it always has existed. These contradictions haven't gone anywhere. They haven't morphed into some weird, wacky, crazy thing, like... The contradiction between capital and labor is as real now as it was 100 years ago. So, like, but I don't know. That's where I wind up disagreeing with him because it's like, well, then why don't we just actually put our energy into figuring out how to harness that well and not just pumping it into a union, which will just, you know, okay, here's a little bit more money. Do your job. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, I don't know. Maybe it just boils down to they both come out of a particularly a particular milieu of revolutionaries who had a particular experience of the 60s and 70s mm. had this came out of a world where there were these sort of like totemic communist parties in France and in Italy and whatever and there was the sort of ever watchful eye of the Soviet Union and the sure, sort of like yeah. the Soviet Communist Party and things were so stultified and fixed uh, that there was sort of no way of getting out of that paradigm and it's just resulted in this kind of response, mm. I suppose. But then, yeah, I mean, I, then just as much as now, your response needs to be, okay, well, how can we rethink this? Because even someone like McNair, who you would just think of in like a meme way as being like, you know, like, I don't know, much more orthodox, off, obviously, right? Like, even he has good answers to these questions of like, well, yeah, like what TC would call programmatism did have its faults. So here's how we address those in a in a systemic way, right? Like we create this thing that doesn't just represent the wage workers, it represents everybody. It uh, has enough variety so that it can meet the variety, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Like, yeah, it feels extremely like I get it. And if we're being materialist about like maybe why these people in this time, if in this specific country were like writing like this, I think as you're saying, that makes a lot of sense. But also like the question then can't just be, Effort, forget about it. As understandable as that is, because I would imagine, you know, these people were very frustrated with the lives that they led and seeing all their hopes dashed or whatever. Like, yeah, it's a little bit of like, pick yourself up, 
dust yourself off, rethink things, don't go back into the exact same thing, because, yeah, you're, that's going to wind up doing the exact same thing, but, like, yeah, rethink things. Don't just give up. Like, it's not giving up, but it is it is giving up. Yeah, I think this book, maybe in hindsight, this book is just a whole load of sort of theoretical gumph and da- <laughs> dancing around an unwillingness to actually reckon with the question of strategy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. And you're right, like, we always come back to this question of how do you ensure that your movement and the institutions within the movement continue to be minded toward uh, the overcoming of cap- capitalism and the institution of socialism? How do they keep in mind that revolutionary process? And I mean, mm-hmm. you always remind me, I think, but we always <laughs> come back to this this idea of like, well, it's there are ways of organizing. We have we have ways of organizing um organizations yeah right? well and the thing and that... there are new ones and there are ones that have never necessarily been impl- applied mm. we we are keen to look toward system theory for example as mm. like a possibility for ways to organize systems systems <laughs> that actually have our desired outcomes as their desired outcomes if that makes yeah. any sense no absolutely and the thing that is so like kind of frustratingly not obvious but like kind of obvious is it's a mixture of like what McNair said and what uh, Stafford Beer says, where it's like McNair is basically, he makes the point where he was like, you know, consider the organization of your, if it's going to be a political party, your political party, and if it were to get power, the structure of that political party is pretty much going to wind up being the structure of the state. So like, just consider that for a moment. And, you know, when we're thinking about the law of requisite variety or whatever, or if we look at the autonomy that is like necessary for a viable system, like that very much becomes obvious. And you just kind of hit yourself over the head because you're like, oh yeah, I suppose the system that I want to set up should probably mirror the society that I want to set up in its autonomy and in its, you know, equality and its allowing of like multiple ideas to flourish or whatever. But like, yeah, I don't know. It's funny because it feels obvious, but then it's like, oh yeah, we just have to think about it for a sec and not just go, well, you know, this whole anti-work thing, that's going somewhere. <laughs> it's like, okay, all right, yeah. Yeah, you can def- there's definitely a way of looking at the history of the failings of the workers' movement, which, crit- let's say, criticizes Lenin's just, and the Bolsheviks' just poor planning for the prospect of actually taking power, mm. or recognizes their failing as being one in which they were never in a position to institute communism without there being a world revolution, right? Or you can criticize the SP days theories around a universal cartel right all we need to do is theories of state capitalism that were being banded about at the time whereby the sort of state would take over capitalist functioning and then institute a process of overcoming capitalism because it was in power kind of thing you can critique those elements without being like okay this proves that there is no way to think this (laughs) transition it's very lazy Yeah. yeah 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 absolutely um and it's funny because like again i don't know if you were to convert Gilles Devey, as we said last time, is still alive, which for some reason that blows my mind. Like I imagine him as like old in the 70s. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Um, if you were to confront him, I would wonder with like systems theory and cybernetics and like actual studies of systems, scientific studies of systems. I wonder if that would be a qualitative shift in content for him or if it would just be uh, for more of the same. Mm-hmm. I don't know. For me, obviously, it's like it is a change in content going from like a Bolshevik party model to like something like that. Yeah, it's much different. Well, I feel like Dovey in particular, as we've said, is actually interested in human nature sure. and what human beings are kind of thing in some mm-hmm. way or, the, or what proletarians are. And like what's systems theory or whatever, but an actual study of 
human societies, mm. human organizations, how you can create an institution which has human beings at its center, you know. Um, so you'd think there'd be a room for overlap, I suppose. You would, you'd hope. Yeah. One would hope. Yeah. Um, These TC clowns on the other end, like, <laughs> totally lost. Ben Shapiro asked debate bros. Um, it's gotten so dark in this room, I can't actually even read what I said. Um, yeah, I don't know. I suppose I would just like to say again that, like, uh, as much as I feel like we're, like, kind of not dunking, but, like, semi being like, come on, guys, like, I roll with this stuff. I think it is always very important to read, like, some more left commie stuff because, like, Gilles Bay and Theory Comedy used to write about a lot of things. And for as much as they disagree and then comically come to the exact same, like, end, which is just like, why the fuck did I just ruin my brain reading all of this stuff? Like, yeah, there's a lot that's really, really worthwhile in here. I think we picked out a lot of it in when we just talked about that first Shield of Bay essay because we were able to talk about, like, you know, um, how anti-fascist struggles basically, like, tie into this, like, perhaps not correct form of organizing that is never going to lead anywhere, and how the implication of that, at least for me, is, like, start organizing now, guys. Like, do it right now, because it's going to be too late if, like, things get bad and you're forced to pick a side, right? Um, but, yeah, it's all very, very good. And I like to think that I'm not a fatalist, so I'm going to say Gilles de Vaymon. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I feel like I have a better grasp of what it was that he was trying to argue for. Which is why so I'm in the it, effort, yeah. <laughs> it, if it is an effort to explain something and communicate ideas, mm. yeah, you did the best job, Gilles Levet. Mm, and man. if you are listening and you are a communizer and you think we're being overly critical of these two communizer factions mm. as they go into intellectual <laughs> battle with one another... Um, Bear in mind that it's probably just that we just didn't understand. Yeah, oh, and absolutely. Our criticism stems from our, uh, our, stupidity. our stupidity and our embarrassment, uh, our intellectual uh, lack of capacity. Fair enough. So, yeah. Also, if you're anyone... I, th yeah, this is something that, like, everybody left of progressives needs to recognize, is that, like, yeah, you can read all of this stuff and critique it and blah, 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 blah. But, like, at the end of the day, these are all abstractions talking about abstract, like things that emerge from society and like you are a concrete human being so like generally speaking what you know you and me are gonna do to further the class struggle is gonna be the exact same thing so it's like maybe just everybody chill out because like nobody's gonna go out there and start the workers party dude like as my <laughs> or start the inter insurrection that. or like, yeah exactly exactly so it's like start the start the riot that turns into the insurrection that yeah. turns into the process of communization which is exactly. like overnight transfers into communism and like, exactly uh, everybody's just doing their part yeah. and so it's like when you meet the like anarchist at the soup kitchen like chill out like i don't know we've spent the last year and a half just talking about theory but like eh, theory's theory yeah I, I mean if you are both working at a soup kitchen that joint activity of doing that work is far more superior to any mm. intellectual yeah, work that you're doing or any amount of um <laughs> internet internet debate that you might be having so. internet debates so. yeah, yeah. I live, live a life with human beings yeah the joint yeah. enterprise of trying to survive exactly yeah make it a bit better for people and then convert them all to communists once uh once once you're done um yeah has this made you think about the whole like when we talked recently in our youtube video dan when we talked recently about anti-work has it gotten you to think about anti-work politics any differently because like it, it is a, an interesting uh framework to come at it from now of like oh the proletariat is self-negating look at that um i don't know how much that actually changed what i think about network politics in general more so like when somebody says work sucks 
agree with them. Don't be like, but work would be better if Stalin was in power. <laughs> like, that's just going to freak everybody out. I mean, all I can say is to come back to what I was saying before about how much I appreciated Shield of A's effort to paint the proletarian condition of as one which is opposed to and dislikes and wants to negate work. Yeah. <laughs> and um, certainly, like, the overcoming of of work, of the relationship between the proletariat and the bourgeoisie, of the overcoming of our alienation in the workplace, our alienation from the activity that we do mm. that sort of like sustains society, the sort of like uh, the overcoming of the distance we experience from our own contribution and importance and power and all of the, overcoming all of those contradictions is wrapped up in the overcoming of work, but it's also wrapped up in the overcoming of capitalism and the mm. transition to communism. So mm. it's key and important questions. And yes, we should all be opposed to work. Yeah, work does in fact <laughs> suck. It's for, yeah, it keeps getting me to think about, we should try and read some more of that Marshall Solomon's book because like yeah. it does get me to think again about like, because I feel like I've never actually, if I'm being honest, understood the distinction of like Hunter in the morning, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And like, I feel like I've only ever seen it really explained well in a study of like the ancient mode and of just, or not ancient mode, definitely not the ancient mode of uh, uh, like primitive communism and of hunter-gatherer societies in which work and literally everything else intermeshed in such a like smooth, unique way that like, yeah. That makes me understand. Yeah, it a bit. yeah. There is a question for me of like, how do you overcome the division of labor sure. in a society that isn't immediate return hunter gatherers sure. kind of thing? What does it look like to overcome the division of labor whilst uh, maintaining the sort of like technologically advanced society that we have? Mm. Um, so yeah, that's definitely something we should go back to, and some of the answers might be in the further study of we will anthropology which we will follow <laughs> we always promise to into do the woods yes. is what we shall do yeah into our gardens yeah yeah exactly <laughs> yeah because again like the whole the idea of like i don't know it yeah i have to balance that with this idea of like communism as this ever prosperous machines and all of the factories machines driving the cars machines brushing your teeth like vision of all of this plenty with like yeah, like the realistic notion of like you know the work that needs to be done by humans if not for like pure like you know just for like resource like we can't get enough computers to do that or whatever just with like this balance of you know what is an actual society that has the division of labor and is fully globalized going to look like if you're going to have some sort of distinction not have some sort of distinction between life and work life everything else right um yeah i don't know we'll see we will see. It'll. It's gonna happen, guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, take, we're Just gonna wait, take one thing from see, this and wait happen. We're fine. <laughs> yeah. Any God. day now. Yeah. I think the theory coming east just scares me too much. It just <laughs> freaks me out because it's like I don't know why. When you're talking about, you think now's the time. Like you saw, like fifty French people in one quarter of Paris be like, well, "I'm too tired and I don't want to go to work," and now you're like, "Now's the time." Like I don't know. Things could certainly get a lot worse. And if you have this idea of, like, fatalist like that, it's like, well, things will get worse. So it's like, do we just have to wait for them to get as bad as possible? And then that's just, like, right-wing neo-Nazi ideology of just, like, wait for a collapse. So, yeah, I don't fucking know. It's scary, man. It's too scary. I don't like it. Jack and I are both too scared. 
both too scared to like theory of comedies <laughs> and i'm a little now i'm a little like oh do i want to read endnotes too i don't know <laughs> how many more of these are there oh god stick with schwang you know what i mean that'll be better um yeah i don't know i also have some warren mosler sitting in front of me i don't know if i need to yeah that's freaking me out more Chuck's <laughs> <laughs> have been diversifying his reading quite a lot <laughs> yeah A.K.A. just being a prick. Yeah. Oh, my new word, Muzzler, because of that. <laughs> mm, hopefully they arrived with a schwang. I'm over here just reading endnotes of Black Library novels. <laughs> I did go to the bookstore to see what selection they had of the Black Library novels, and I uh, was not impressed. I was quite disappointed. I also went into the yeah. into the Waterstones to see. Yeah. I thought they'd have, like, shelves and shelves and shelves, but mm. but no. Shame. No. What are you going to do? No. Um, just to update the listener. We have played some games of Kill Team, and it, <laughs> and it rocks. They don't care. <laughs> they don't care. If you've been a long-time listener, there were like maybe two episodes where we bought this up way long ago, and we were like, yeah. we'll definitely play a game by Christmas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We played some games in April, and it rocks. Yeah. It's a good game. Yeah. So here we are shilling for Games Workshop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Let us know. Um, let us know what Kill Teams we should collect next. Yeah. Jock and I have both oh, bought God. some Space Marines, because yeah. you know, that's what you do. That's what you do. Play the good guys. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, yeah, I don't know. Demons are cool, man. Demons are very cool. There's a lot of cool stuff. What are you going to do? Um, hopefully we'll get a squat kill team one of these days, Dan. And then uh, we'll just do that. Yeah, I'm not excited for squats. Are you actually not? No. I wouldn't say I'm excited, but it's like, oh, cool. Something new. Mm. I don't get it. <laughs> I don't get it. They're just tiny. They're little yeah. guys. Yeah. They're just hanging out. Um, right. I think I was just told for like... 20 years that like they were gone they're not coming back they were a stupid idea and now it just seems like pandering you know what that I'm is like games workshop grow a backbone and you like know? commit you know? Like, you know what it is dan they, were, they were eaten they were eaten is... by how three fleet kraken and like it's this done is, it's done because dwarves just... in space is stupid <laughs> okay this is first of all this is just this is just your blatant disregard for fantasy dan because that's it's what came first, and tell me, enlighten me. What came first? Was it Warhammer Fantasy or was it Warhammer 40k? Hmm. I believe it was Warhammer Fantasy. And all I'm saying yeah. is it Warhammer 40k. Which, but yeah, but which one of those still exists? Okay, make a good point. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll have you know, Age of Sigmar. All I'm saying is that, like, it was made to just be like dwarfs in space, elves in space, guys in space. So it's basically fantasy. So all I'm saying is dwarfs are cool, all right? It's, it's true. It's true. It's true. <laughs> anyway. Okay, for everybody that's still listening and regrets and wishes they'd stopped listening five minutes ago. Yeah, well, what are you going to do? <laughs> All the communizers are still listening and taking notes. Right? It's a very long YouTube comment about mm. how wrong we are. <laughs> oh, well, what are you going to do? Um, yeah, and notes. It rocks. It's all really, really good. Um, a bit freaky, a bit scary. Um, yeah, something I'd like to talk about maybe off air because I don't know how much I actually want to say what I think about it. This got me thinking about like the role that different communist revolutions, successful revolutions actually played in like, you know, like capitalism becoming like an actual global system. Anyway, what are you going to do? We'll talk about that later. Um, this was really, really good. Read it, everybody. Support EndNotes. I think they're still putting things out. If they're not, I don't know. What are you going to do? I still exist. I mean, I bought my copy of the book direct from their website. So Someone's in a warehouse somewhere. Busting <laughs> up a box. Yeah, all right. Uh-huh. All right. Oh, cool. Well, we'll see you next time, everybody. No idea what we're going to do. Yeah. Thanks for listening. <laughs> Thanks for bearing with us. <laughs> Have a good day. Yeah, bye.
The music you heard this episode was Music to Kill Bad People To by King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard. If you like this song, you can check it out and much, much more on their Bandcamp at kinggizzard.bandcamp.com. Be sure and follow us up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. And if you like what you heard, be sure and tune in next week for some more comedy discussion. Till next time. Oh, my God.